HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, bars, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Todd Cavallo. We'll talk to Todd about permaculture, biodynamics, the Hudson Valley, Wild Ark Farm, and a lot more. We'll taste at least a piquette. And do we have a carbonic Marquette here? Uh, it's a Marquette. Okay. And Todd loaded up the table with a bunch of other wines. So we're going to be tasting that uh, throughout the show. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Todd Cavallo left Brooklyn with his wife, Crystal, in uh, 2016 to try his hand at sustainable food systems. He is the proprietor of Wild Ark Farm, located in the heart of the Hudson Valley, just north of New York City. Wild Ark Farm is a pursuit of sustainable food and beverage production within the small farm environment. Wild Ark is an experiment in biodynamic permaculture and viticulture, viticulture, producing exciting wines like Piquette, Pet Nat, Riesling, hybrid grapes like Marquette, and more. Todd is also a 2019 40 Under 40 Tastemaker from Wine Enthusiasts. Bet your mom loved that. Yeah, I think I'm finally legit. Yeah, you go. Todd, <laughs> welcome to the Grape Nation. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to have you on. I've bumped into you a bunch of times at different portfolio tastings, and uh, it seems like since then things are going pretty well. 
it's not why I'm having you on, <laughs> but there's a lot of good things to talk about. Yeah, so I, I can't complain. Let's uh, let's give the listener an idea of who you are and where you came from. So give me a little background on your journey in life and wine that got you to the Hudson Valley and Wild Ark Farm. Uh, well, we weren't really like a wine drinking family growing up, but uh, one of my earliest memories of, of wine being like a, a big part of the table was uh, coming to the city when I was 17 um, to look at colleges and then going out to some restaurant in Little Italy and my dad ordered uh, some probably industrial Chianti, who knows, whatever they had there, but they put down a glass for every single person at the table, including me, who was underage at the time. And I was just like, oh, it's, you know, I guess, you know, it's part of the meal. Everyone drinks or whoever wants to drink can drink. Um, and then, you know, I s spent six dark years not drinking a lot of wine after that because I was in college and we drank a bunch of cheap beer. Um, when you but, said uh, came into the city, where'd you grow up? I grew up in central New York, in Syracuse, okay. yeah. Okay. And so I'm a New Yorker through and through. Right. Um, and yeah, so then I came to the city for school and, you know, drank a little wine here and there, but it wasn't really until after I graduated that, um, you know, friends and I uh, started drinking more serious wines and going out to the restaurants that were in the city and seeing what was available. Um, I think, you know, my Crystal, my partner and I, and uh, some of our friends had a, a tasting at Babo and it was the first time I had had a bunch of that really, really good Barolo and then some Barolo Chinato, so some weirdo stuff too. Right. Um, and then I had two younger brothers who worked in the industry in the city for a dozen years. And uh, through a lot of their friends, we met people in the industry and drank a lot of weird wines and were introduced to a lot of wines and, you know, started drinking a little bit, still mostly Italian, but a little weirder stuff like a little Paolo Bea and got into his Santa Chiara, which was probably the first orange wine that I had. And that introduced me to a whole new world. And then just eating in the restaurants in the city that had forward thinking wine lists at the time. We had some more orange wines at like uh, Sambar and other restaurants that were doing that stuff. Uh, and then kind of, you know, along the same, in the same time, uh, my partner Crystal would uh, be researching and reading about wine and saw some documentary about biodynamic wine. And we didn't really understand at the time, you know, 10 years ago, what that really meant, but we were, were interested in it, and so we started seeking those wines out. And so, so just, a documentary kind of fired the whole uh, interest up to an extent uh, in the biodynamic side of things. But then you start drinking those wines, and you start realizing how much more alive they are, and how great they taste, and you know how the philosophy behind it is a lot more wholesome than drinking something made by a corporation. And so, yeah, so we just had been kind of consumers for a long time until. Um, Maybe, you know, four years ago, five years ago or so, a few years before we moved up there, we had started spending a lot of time upstate, hiking and camping. And we had this idea of getting a weekend house and keeping a place in the And you were in, in Brooklyn. City. I was in so Brooklyn, So we're talking yeah. Brooklyn and looking upstate a little. Right, exactly. Like, like everyone loves right. to do now. A um, little cliche, but uh, I'll, I'll embrace it. Uh, and we realized just we could never afford a weekend house and to keep a place in the city. So we gave up on that idea. Um, but then through a series of real estate drama, um, not real estate, but just apartment drama, we decided to get out of the city because we had this rent-stabilized apartment that was perfectly located and super cheap, but the ceiling collapsed in the bedroom, and then the <laughs> kitchen cabinet fell off the wall and almost killed Crystal. With your plates in it? All, right. all gone, all right. gone. And so, uh, so we moved to a new apartment, new construction building in Windsor Terrace, and spent a year there, and it was almost just as bad, like no heat or hot water for half the winter, sewage explosions. <laughs> and so at that point, we're like, someone is telling us, like, get out of New York. 
So uh, we went back to looking upstate again, but with an idea of moving <clears> up there, not keeping an apartment, um, finding something that was commutable because I still had a job in the city. And uh, Quickly, what were you doing? Nothing uh, I to do with wine. I, no, nothing to do with wine. I worked in, in tech, but not in like the kind of tech where you make a lot of money. Um, I had a small consulting company with some partners. We did it for a dozen years together, and I did mostly software development. And I tried to get into the food and beverage world because we did some work with uh, Jean George Restaurant Group and Momofuku and those guys. Um, through the tech Through the tech door? Thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, then, yeah, we said, let's, let's get out of the city, and, you know, I'll keep doing that. And we had kind of like a 10-year plan to maybe learn how to make some wine and retire in 10 years early and start a winery. Um, but what happened is we bought some fruit and we got our license right away just because we wanted to be able to sell wine. And uh, we made like a, a barrel the first year and it turned out pretty good. And because this was bought, contracted. Yeah, or we bought, bought fruit, yeah, yeah, not yeah. even contracted. Yeah. Negoti Negoti fruit, yeah. sure. Right. Um, yeah, so we bought that's some. A, that's incredibly fast. Uh, well, it was just supposed to be like, hey, let's see if we can figure this out. Let's buy some fruit and make some wine. And it was, like I said, just a barrel, 25 cases. But because I had so many friends in the industry through my brothers and their friends and people that we'd met, I was able to get those wines in front of people and they were able, you know, they bought them. We, we sold a bunch of wine to our friends and then to restaurants in the city from that first tiny little vintage. So... Here's what I don't get, and this is kind of a nosy personal question. Sure. I mean, you kind of like pack everything and go up there. I mean, obviously, you had a few bucks in your pocket in the bank. I mean, not to bankroll you for the rest of your life. No, but no. You had that cushion? We, uh, we, so when I, we had enough, we, we spent all our money buying the property and the house. Okay. And so we had the plan to keep my job, and I had a, a decent uh -huh. enough salary. And so I had my job for the first two years, and I commuted part-time to the city, and then, so after that first year went so well, we said, let's make some more wine. So in 17, we made, you know, we made like 400 cases of wine, a little bit more. And again, it was received well. People wanted it. I was spending a lot of time selling it. And my old business partners in the city said, you know, you, you seem pretty focused on this wine thing. Maybe it's time to get out of here. And so, you know, in, nice, in a nice way, we separated from them and I got like, you know, a what I call a bronze parachute. It's not a lot of money, right. but it was enough for me to, you know, buy a little bit more equipment and not have to go, you know, a lot of money in debt to start the winery. But right. we're still, I mean, if you see, we're in a dirty old barn. It's barely uh, sealed up and we've got a bunch of old, small equipment. So I, I think that's the, uh, the charm of it all, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, th so I hope you, that comes through in the glass. You, you went up there and you knew you wanted to do some kind of sustainable and biodynamic farming. Um, you knew you were going to buy wine? Uh, I knew I was going to have to not, buy fruit. Not, not that quickly, though. I mean, right. You bought I did, it right I, away. Yeah, I, I thought maybe we... So the 10-year plan was really a two-one-year well, plan. Well, it turned into a two-year right, plan, right, right. yeah. Right. Um, so you're off to the races. Let's talk about um, the area. I'm very intrigued, you know, because you're really dug in there now. Um, can you grow world-class or interesting wines in the Hudson Valley? Uh, I think you absolutely can. Um, and the, you know, the story that we all tell up there is that we have both the oldest and the longest-running wineries in the country there. It's um, a storied wine region. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was the original. I mean, the, the French Huguenots planted grapes in the 1600s, and they were some of the first uh, in the country. And then, you know, um, Brotherhood and Ben Marl wineries uh, have been around forever. And uh, there's been some ups and downs, um, you know. But, but even... 
drill it down a little. Can you grow world-class wines? That's the big question. Or the wines that are important and acceptable to you in your context, which is a small biodynamic permaculture sustainable environment? Well, uh, uh, that I would say is maybe TBD um, because, yeah, I mean, we can grow world-class wines there um, and we are working with the other growers that we work with to move towards full organic production there. Um, you know, our first step is we, we try to get people off of herbicides and, and we have a, a vineyard, Brunswick Vineyard, 10 minutes up the road from us. Uh, and the first year we started working with them, they stopped using herbicide and they just have to spend a lot of Under time your influence. now. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. like sold. I yeah. mean, how do you argue that, right? Yeah, and then, you know, we, we, we brought them to Raw Wine Fair that year and we introduced them to all the people doing this stuff and gave them some books. And they're like, oh, okay, this is a thing. This is worldwide. It's not just some weirdo in the Hudson Valley. Um, and so, yeah, and, then, and we've moved them towards uh, some organic antifungal sprays and we're just trying to kind of help people in that direction by offering them monetary incentives, buying them sprays, offering to help out in whatever way we can. Um, are you the sole evangelist or there's a few people up there that are carrying the message? Um, there, there are people who are catching on and there are people, definitely people who aren't making wine commercially yet who are up there um, definitely growing this way and right. doing hybrid stuff in small home vineyards. And, uh, and you, you get to meet all those people because they're like, oh, this guy's doing it you know, on a larger scale. Let's talk. And you know, we're maybe getting some fruit in from a friend who has a biodynamic vineyard nearby, very, very small, but maybe help him make a couple of demijohns of wine this year and, and see what happens. Right. Um, you may have sort of answered this question, but in the region, and in a few minutes I'll have you talk about terroir climate, grapes and all that, but um, in the region, is it tougher to be organic biodynamic or that's not a it's very 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 difficult the disease pressure from because of the climate and all yeah that, which from the from the moisture the mildew right. um and typical and the, northeast and the exactly yeah. yeah so there are there are vineyards you know in california that so you're challenged yes yeah there are, and the and the, the climate too we'll get to separately but to talk about just the, the disease pressure and the mildew like there are vineyards in california that talk about never having to spray antifungals they're just dry um, and so it's a great way to be able to grow, but um, not a lot of those vineyards are also dry farming. So, you know, the question uh, is, is having to, spe you know, use 50,000 gallons an acre of water a year to irrigate your vineyard, but not having to spray synthetics or antifungals any better in the long run um, for the for the local ecosystem right um which is i'm i don't know and you know i can't say which is better or for worse um but i just know that we have never had to irrigate and we never did when we planted our fruit um we didn't when we planted our trees other than a couple buckets of water for the beginning of the season um but we do have extreme mildew pressure and you know we're still learning what works and what doesn't um well you know we tried to not spray any copper for the whole entire first year and we were almost completely defoliated by downy mildew You're hardcore man and, and kicked in the ass it's little. tough yeah and we're yeah. working you know with some new bio antifungals that i was excited about but one of them is this 
product that's owned by Bayer and Monsanto, and so we don't want to, you know, support, support them. them. So we found another company making the same uh, version of this Bacillus subtilis strain, and so I bought some of that this year, and it shows up in a box that says manufactured by Bayer in Mexico oh, because boy. they're just licensing it from them. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So so yeah, we're we're learning as we go, and we're learning the natural stuff that works, and we've got uh, you know we. Sulfur is the old thing that everyone does and that works forever. Um, and then milk for powdery mildew, but downy mildew and black rot are the hard ones. And so we're we're still kind of struggling our way through that. So you, it sounds like you've experimented, addressed most of it. You're almost there. I mean, well, like you said, <laughs> so by then, not using copper, yeah, we're, got... we're we're figuring it out on that side. But right. then on the other side, we planted 1,200 new vines last year, and uh, on your property, on our property, yeah, uh, and we lost about 70 percent of them to winter kill. Um, and it was just the worst year. To Weather plant. cold, cold. Yeah, there was. There Is was... it because they were so young? Because they were so young, because it was one of the rainiest seasons in like 100 right. years, and so they were not very strongly established already, and then there was an early frost, and then there was a polar vortex in January, and then there was a late frost in April. So the combination just basically took these little baby vines and, and, and beat them into submission. So basically all of our Chardonnay block that we planted is dead. We've still got some Pinot and some Cab Franc, um, but now the question is like, we're going to be two years behind because in the spring, nobody has vines to order anymore from the nurseries. So now we have to wait another year to replant that middle God. block. And so we're, we're, that, we're behind uh, for a lot of reasons. That apartment in Brooklyn with the ceiling falling in kind of looks good after a season yeah. like that. Just a little dry cleaning bill to clean up those clothes. That's not as bad as No. So explain something to me because you alluded to it, you know, when you were planting trees. You practice what is permaculture, right? I mean, it's part of your – explain – Explain what permaculture is, or uh, how you do it. Or it's, your it's, yeah, it's pretty broad, and it has a number of definitions. What we're, what we're looking at is to um, create uh, a kind of self-contained ecosystem that doesn't require a lot of inputs or a lot of work from us as farmers. Um, farming, regardless of how thoughtfully you're doing it, you're still imposing your will on the land. And so um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to plant a lot of more heirloom and native trees and a mixed block of them. So you're not planting just, hey, like, let's get 500 of the same clone of apple trees. We've got no more than three of any one variety of apple. They're all full-size trees. They're all broad, uh, widely spaced. And then uh, around those, you plant what's called a guild planting. So you've got things like alliums that keep certain pests away. You've got flowers that attract pollinators. And... Um, and then uh, you've got an understory planted too. So you're, um, the idea there is that you're actually able to absorb more of the sun's energy in a smaller square footage footprint because you're taking multiple layers of uh, sun exposure. So you've got your big trees, and then you've got your kind of bushes, and then you've got your low shrubs underneath that. Um, and they're in a you know like a, a triangular kind of right. like solar panels. You know they're getting at yeah. the right angle to it's absorb amazing. the most sun. But we're still how, know, how three you, years in, like, so we're not established. At there least either. with biodynamics, there was like these Steiner guidelines or something. How do you figure all this stuff out? I mean, there's enough written about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of. There's this uh, guy Sepp Holzer, um, uh, who is Austrian, right? I think he's Austrian. Yeah, yeah. Austrian. So he has, he has, he's he's a the guy, mountain right? Top who's he's been doing it there, and so he did a lot of the stuff with the Hukul culture mounds, and we have that stuff too with wildflowers broadcast on them, and. Um, so yeah, we, we read a lot of books, we listen to a lot of podcasts, um, you know, there's <laughs> okay. a lot of information out there for us, and then it's just a matter of finding the other people doing this stuff and talking them, to them Very about cool. what works and what doesn't. 
Um, so let's talk about that haunting term, natural wine. Sure. Uh, um, right you, you know, if people have been listening for the first 15 minutes, you know, they realize you're seriously and deep into it. Um, but you've said that the term is being redefined daily. And I couldn't agree more. And it's so fluid. So what I want to hear from you is, because it's being redefined daily and it's so fluid, where is natural wine, the wines, the movement? Where's it at in your mind, you know, today? And I'll say you're so busy trying to accomplish this stuff, it's hard to think about it. But then, you know, you come up for air and yeah. you're a natural wine producer. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I love the strictest definition. I love it's, you know, organically farmed fruit that uh, is made with, you know, I, zero sulfur, some would say. I would say minimal sulfur. Um, we're not afraid of sulfur. We'll use a little bit here and there um, if we feel uh, cuvee warrants it. But last year, we're probably about uh, 40% were zero sulfur uh, cuvees that we put out. And the rest had maybe 10 or 20 parts per million added at crush and not at bottling. So it's really gone by the end anyway. But, you know, we've had a wine, we had a wine that um, got a little mousy after it was open for three days. And I did experiments where I injected sulfur through the cork in these sealed bottles. And as little as 10 ppm solved the problem. And I couldn't tell the difference side by side between the two. So you had made um, the wine. You had right, corked it. Right. You tested a few samples. And it got mousy after three or four days. And you, like... Coravind it or Essentially, stuff, yeah. you know, with yeah. a hypodermic. Yeah, I got I got someone to send and me that, some hypodermic um, needles. That solved the problem, get, actually. Uh, and it's I didn't do it on the whole batch, right? But it was a learning to see experience. if it would. Yeah. Uh, and so now I know we we bench test all our wines before bottling. We take the blend from the barrel, we put it in a bottle. Uh, seal it, leave it for a couple of days, open it up, and then bench test it and give it a trial. And if it goes anyway sideways, then we'll we'll do some tests and see if a little five. 7, 10 ppm sulfur dose solves it. And if it does, and if I can't, as the winemaker, differentiate between the dose and the non-dose version, I'm going to put a little bit of sulfur in there. But I also am completely open about You don't that. have a problem with that. No, no. And I am now, I mean, you can look at the back of our labels. It's got the, the sulfur dosage for, for each uh, cuvee that we have here. And I'm totally open and honest about it. So for me, honest wine is kind of the more important moniker. Right, transparency. Yeah, than, than, That's all. than fitting into a box that is ill-defined sometimes. I, I agree with that. Um, and, and also some of our uh, grapes are grown conventionally because I can't get as many growers as I want to work with me up front. And so sometimes what we do is we'll buy a couple tons from someone and say, hey, if this works out next year, maybe can we think about getting off herbicides? And then the year after that, maybe we can move to organic. Have you gotten to that point yet? Uh, yeah, we have. We have some younger growers who are more willing to, to talk to us about that. And so we're establishing some longer-term contracts now. Um, but, again, the same thing is we just put it out there and we say, hey, look, this is conventionally grown. Uh, we're charging a little bit less for it. Um, but just, just so you know. Where is that? On the website? The label? Uh, on the website, we're, uh, we have some keys on the labels, but we're, working, we're, we're trying not to um, anger the TTB by putting anything on there that we're not allowed to. So it'll be in all the tech sheets and then it'll be So your influence, your evangelical push, um, the fact that you're a buyer now, There'll be a point soon where you won't have to touch conventional grapes, right? I mean, let's let's hope so. Yeah, yeah. that's the hope um, for sure. Um, but also, uh, 
part part of that and part of the the, the permaculture idea is that like it's necess not necessarily great to be putting more vineyards in the ground. Again, it's like it's farming, it's it's enforcing your will on the land. There's the balance. Yeah. Oh so if I'm out there and I'm I'm growing and I'm like, oh, I'm going to put in ten more acres of grapes and I'm going to pull out this native grassland or whatever's there. That's that's not really great as far as being a someone who's thoughtfully sustainable. And so what we're thinking about now is more of like how many more acres can we get that exist moved into a more thoughtful um, growing paradigm. So you have to buy and expand on... Right, and get buy-in If from, you honor the system you set out right. to practice and all yeah. of that. Um, on the natural wine thing, um, people can farm organically or have great farming practices and they screw it up in the cellar, right? I mean, that's still going on. Sure, yeah. Um, like the sulfur thing or any of the zillions of... Alice Firing was on a couple yeah, of yeah. weeks ago. The 70 additives, you know, you can put, put on wine. Yeah. And, you know, even organic wine in the U.S., <clears throat> you can't have sulfur in it, but you can have up to those right. additives. Which is crazy, additives. the yeah. way it's, uh, that, that, you, that, you know, That, marked. I think, needs to change. That's why it's being redefined daily, or it's being abused daily, or it's misunderstood daily. Sure, and all yeah. That. Um, but I think transparency is an important thing, and, you know, that's something that you practice. All right, let's talk about the Hudson Valley, and let's talk about, you know, when you get up every day uh, for the four seasons, give me an idea of the terroir soil you're dealing with, the climate. So the, I mean, the, the AVA. And the, the Hudson, challenges. The Hudson River region AVA is pretty huge. We always say it's basically from the Bronx to Albany. It's just <laughs> okay. like, there's so many diverse terroirs in there, um, both geologically and uh, climate influenced, that it's hard to really talk about it as one thing. Um, but where we are and where most of our fruit is coming from is the mid-Hudson Valley. And we're kind of right below... Uh, this ridge called the Shawan Gunk Ridge, if you've ever been up and seen the gunks. In, um, Great hiking area. Yeah, and the climbing. Um, yeah. You can see these just carved out white cliff faces of quartz and granite. And so a lot of that quartz and granite is, is in the soil as, as boulders and pebbles. And there's some decomposed granite that forms a lot of the soil. So they're granitic soils. Granitic soils, yeah. But they're also a bunch of glacial till. So there's stuff that's dropped off in there from God knows where, from e eons ago. And so it's not really easily identifiable. Um, and then there's also, you know, in our vineyard specifically, we have a lot of area right in the center where there's a lot of red clay about uh, 12 to 18 inches down. Uh -huh. uh, and it's only in one area, and it's, you know, pretty concentrated. But, um, you know, I, I think about it as primarily granitic, and that's what we're thinking about with the flavor profiles that we're getting from, from this fruit. You know, it's... What, what, what does it impart? Like, what, what do you pick up? I uh, mean, well, I mean, I think about, uh, like, the Northern Rhone, or I think about Beaujolais. I think about kind of a, a lighter, lighter style of red wine. Um, and we do, we make reds and whites, and reds are not really very well regarded from New York State. But I think the, the greatest thing that the natural wine movement has brought to the table is this ability to look at wines of a region as what they are and not try to compare them to other things and to say, oh, this region can make 11%, 10% red wines that are light on their feet and light in color and light in body, but, you know, you, a little chill or great with food. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what does well where we are. And so, and again, then we have a little bit of clay in the middle. So maybe those more clayey vineyards in the Hudson River region are the places where you can try to push the texture a little bit further. You can try to get a little bit richer, rounder, fattier red wines, um, or, you know. But you have a shorter growing season. 
We do. We have a shorter How does that growing affect, season. Yeah. So does that, that affect you know tannin acidity? Um, it it affects. Uh, well, we we can maintain acidity really well, um, obviously. Um, and yeah, we don't we don't have the ability to build as much skin tannin because we're not having as much sun on the grapes once they have gone through abrasion um, before we have to harvest them. Things cool down around now. Things start to get harvested, and really from now until October, we're harvesting, but. Um, in my opinion, because we have the longer, hotter days in August and early September, we get phenolic ripeness out of the way a little earlier. And then I think that that, that sugar ripeness, those bricks levels, are just kind of like a, a long tail that comes along at the end and slowly you're kind of waiting for those to come up. But um, we do, I mean, one of the things that we do that's a little bit more, uh, a little different than what has been done in the region in, in the past is that we do a lot of whole cluster with stems on, and people are always worried about it. If you can't get the grapes ripe, then the stems are going to be really unripe, and they're going to make bitter, horrible, undrinkable wines. But we've we've gone up to, I mean, we the skin contact creminette that we do is 100% whole cluster, two-week maceration, and, and there's no bitterness left in there. That and this Marquette out. is 50% whole cluster. The Geraldigo we did last year was 40%. And you just, you get out there in the vineyard and you, you open up the grapes and you chew on the uh, skins and you chew on the seeds and you chew on the stems and you, you know. see what the flavors are that are in there. And you might be making a 10 or 11% wine that's not very, you know, sh sugar rich. But if those phenolically ripe compounds are where they're supposed to be, then throw the, throw the stems in there. Um, what about alcohol? Do the ripe grapes yield a lower alcohol or typical? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I, 18 is a perfect uh, example because across the state, people had a hard time pushing ripeness. Um, really, really good growers. Um, like, you know, our friends at Bloomer Creek were able to get their, uh, their Cab Franc up to 23, but really from uh, Finger Lakes, Hudson River region, and Long Island, all our grapes came in under 20, mm. some closer to 18 or 19. So we have a lot of wines coming out this vintage that are like 10%. Um, mm. And I, I enjoy them. I like them. They're still full of flavor. They're interesting, but it's a light, it's a light wine for sure. Yeah. Um, Todd, we have to take a quick break. I'm breaking early. We're talking to Todd Cavallo. Todd is the proprietor of Wild Ark Farm. Uh, when we come back, um, we're going to talk about Wild Ark, the grapes, what he's making, a lot of interesting things, Paquette and all that. We're going to subject Todd to the uh, wine list, and we're going to... Uh, we started tasting a bunch of wines, but we're going to taste more and taste for our weekly wine sip. Um, so you're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions, and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history 
at wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Grape Nation. Our guest is Todd Cavallo. Todd is from Wild Ark Farm uh, up in the Hudson Valley in New York. Todd, I want to talk to you about uh, the actual farm, Wild Ark Farm. So you, we talked about it a little. You purchased 10 acres Just about, about yep. when you got up there, right? Yeah. Um, and you even talked about expanding a little, you know, if and when that comes. Um, so let's get a little more into your seller and farming practices. I guess the first question is, what are you doing on your own property? Um, where are you getting grapes? You did mention Finger Lakes, you know, down to the area. Um, and I guess you'll just confirm, you know, the low intervention, you know, winemaking. Yeah, so we're, um, yeah, we're farming fully biodynamically, um, so only, only organic sprays. Um, we're spraying, um, you know, the 500 horn manure prep in the spring. Uh, we spray 501 and 507, I think it is, so horse, uh, horsetail and um, uh, the horn silica. So those are the drying sprays. Anytime we'll have a sulfur spray or one of the antifungals, we'll put one of those in the tank with it um, to try to get some drying effects out. And then the rest of the sprays go in the compost pile, and then we use that compost throughout the farm on the vineyard and in the, the vegetable beds and anything else that we're planting. Um, and you know, I, we, we're not super, super strict with following the calendar. Um, but uh, you know, we're, we're trying not to, um, basically for, for racking and things like that and bottling, we try to follow more what the, um, barometric pressure is doing rather than, you know, what the, what the moons are really? doing. There's just, there's not a lot of actual, um, uh, scientific rigor, uh, studies or proof that those moon cycles, even though they affect the tides, can really affect the the pull on uh, you know the leaves at the bottom of a barrel, for example, if you're racking. Um, so I, I lean a little bit more towards the <laughs> pretty um, crazy the scientifically provable and repeatable side of the biodynamics, right. and less to the witchy side. But um, you know it is it is something that you're out there, you're thinking about, you're it's meditative. You're stirring those preps for 30 minutes and just looking into the vortex, and you're thinking about what you're going out to do in the vines, and you're spending more time in the vines. Um, so, so on the 10 acres, you had mentioned last year you got killed. We did. We have, was that the majority of what you had planted or that was, uh, so we had planted a small planting of about 400 vines the first year by hand. And then we got 1200 planted last year, um, with the help of uh, a machine planter, which was amazing. But now it's like 70% of those are gone. So we've got about 50% of our vines that we planted still intact. And that's only about an acre. That's um, it's pretty densely planted for an acre. We have a very small um, row and spacing setup, and then we have about half to three quarter of an acre of mixed fruit and nut trees that are the start of the permaculture orchard, which is right abuts the the vineyard. Um, and yeah, we're just gonna now we're two years behind. I said so. We're just gonna be waiting for a while for that stuff. So right. we've got we've got the vineyard Brunswick Vineyard up the road, um, which has Chardonnay, Cab Franc, and Tremonet. 
they actually have zero fruit this year because they lost all of their canes and all their buds to the, the winter freeze. So we're buying some more Finger Lakes fruit this year. Um, but we have a vineyard that we get uh, a lot of hybrids from up in uh, Valley Falls, which is like outside of Troy, New York, way up in the capital region. Right. And that's our that's uh, a grower who was 80% of the way uh, towards being organic. He was just spraying a little bit of fungicide, um, but he had chickens for pest control and fertilizer. He had never used uh, herbicide. And so we said, hey, I'll buy and ship you the spray, use this, not that. And last year he did that and went really well. So this year the whole vineyard is organic and we're buying all the fruit from him this year. So about eight tons of fruit. Uh, unfortunately, he sold the vineyard. So now we're going to have to talk to the new owners and say, hey, let's please continue this relationship. Keep the organic going and we'll buy all your fruit and we'll pay you a premium. Um, so there's a there's a pretty big pull, not distraction, of keeping up on all of that stuff. I mean, you're dealing with the climate, obviously, but you're dealing with, you know, people who are growing, trying to, you know, create relationships with those guys. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know... Juggling a lot of balls. The old joke is that winemaking is 90% cleaning, and uh, I would say, yeah, that's (laughs) that's probably true, but also of that remaining 10%, most of that is logistics and management, and we're talking about, yeah, managing those relationships, managing your books, um, managing moving fruit around, getting your pickups in time, getting your bins where they need to be so they can get filled with fruit. But who's doing that all? It's basically you and your wife? Yeah. yeah. A friend here and there it's, or whatever yeah, we have a lot. Harvest? We have a lot of uh, volunteers who come up and help with bottling and harvest, which is awesome. Um, it's been a lifesaver um, because there's really not uh, – there's like there is in California, we don't have um, an existing infrastructure of vineyard management uh, right. teams who have crews that will come in and pick for you. If we could pay someone to go and pick this eight acres, I mean, I would pay it tomorrow, just please, or eight tons rather, just get it in for me. And now instead I'm up there for, it's going to be the fifth day uh, in a week doing a 15 hour day to try to get as much fruit in as we Is can. Is that a business we should look into? <laughs> I thought about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have. Maybe. I have, yeah. All right. We'll talk about that later. Um, so... Obviously, the environs of the Hudson Valley are unique, um, and I think certainly the grapes are. And in setting up, you know, what you do and you make, let's talk about the grapes, you know, in the Hudson Valley. Um, A lot of varietals people may have heard of once or never heard of. Um, I need you to explain what a hybrid grape is, sort of where they came from. And let's talk specifically about, you know, kind of focusing on the grapes you know that you're working with sure. and you'd mentioned already more than a half a dozen so. yeah and there's actually a, the a field blend that we're doing from that vineyard uh amarici vineyard that's got over a dozen different hybrids co-planted reds whites and pinks um and we just vinify them all together but uh so you sound like my friend nate reddy <laughs> yeah sure yeah absolutely yeah something to aim for yeah um yeah so the you know uh vinifera vin- vitis vinifera are the 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 grapes that most people know the names the of. European the European classic variety, grapes, right. Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Um, and those uh, do not do super well in moisture, and they don't do super well in cool climates. There are some that do, so those are the ones that kind of made their way into New York State. Um, Riesling in the Finger Lakes is a prime example. Dr. Constantine Frank did his job uh, and, and showed us that that could be done. Uh, Cab Franc is taking off Pinot Noir, and now there's some Gamay that's getting planted across mm. New York, and I love that because Gamay on granite is just exactly what you Works. want. Um, so uh, White Cliff Vineyard has some Gamay planted up at their Olana Vineyard up near Hudson. Um, I'm really trying to get my hands on some of that eventually, but I might have to plant my own. We'll see. 
Um, but then uh, what happened is um, these cool climate uh, viticulturists started trying to figure out what they could do to breed those grapes with the native grapes that did survive well here. And so they took those Vitis vinifera grapes and they bred them with uh, Vitis labrusca, Vitis riparia, all of the native and local grapes. And basically just over hundreds of years came up with all of these different versions of them that, you know, made it or didn't make it, made good wine or didn't make good wine, survived or didn't. And uh, there's two basic sources for most of that plant material in the U.S., and that's the University of Minnesota and Cornell. Right, and Cornell Cor- had yeah. a big hand in that because yeah. they so, were in the finger lakes. Yeah, exactly. And so um, both of those uh, sources have kind of uh, gone up and down the East Coast and been planted everywhere. So we have, you know, we have uh, La Crescent and, and Louis Swenson, um, and Marquette and things, other things from University of Minnesota planted all over New York. And then we have the Geneva hybrids, Cayuga, and all the ones that are a little like Baco Noir, things that you might have seen in the um, tasting rooms of the Hudson Valley right. in the past. And so those are all planted up and down. But a lot of them had been kind of just blended into named wines instead of done varietally. Um, a lot of, I think, the problems of the past vinifications have been trying to get them to fit into a box of maybe what their parentage was. You know, Marquette has a little bit of Pinot Noir in its parentage. And so saying, oh, this should be our Pinot or this should be our Cab Sauv or this should be whatever, um, I think forces you to try to m- make the wine into something that it doesn't necessarily right, want to be. Right, I think that's important. And so that's the other good thing that the natural wine paradigm has brought to the table is the ability to say let the grape do what it wants to do and then see what that is and then so we've done a couple different vinifications with Marquette for example where let's see what it does when it's carbonic let's see what it does when it's whole cluster let's see what it does when it's pet nat Um, and you know we've had the best results are some of the ones we've had do you single out a Marquette because it may have those Pinot characteristics no no and those you know Gamay Pinot, some of them are no, carbonic. It's, it's more of uh, which what what wines have we tasted that we like from hybrid grapes, and that's been people who've come before me, like right. Deirdre Heakin at Lega Regista has been doing it forever, and she's Up in made Vermont. amazing wines. And so, uh, and then some of the the guys like from Pinari Fee up in Quebec are making a lot of hybrid wines. And so you taste those wines made in the way that we like to make wines, and the ones that are good, you say, okay, that grape can do something right. magical. I get it. Um, so that's where, that's where we Explain something looking. to me. When you talk about University of Minnesota and Cornell having a hand in this, did they do the research, or do they provide the the vine still? Uh, or, they well, um, they provided they, the original material, and then there are um, there are nurseries all over the country that have been propagating them, and some of them actually still have uh, royalties on them that you have to pay back to the right. universities, uh, and it'll when you go on the you know like AA vineyards or whatever one of the. New York nurseries, it'll say this one has an extra five cents tacked on per vine. It goes back to University of Minnesota. Um, but they had great breeding programs, and they had breeders in each uh, place. Right. And, like, Elmer just, Swenson is, like, the famous one. That's where Louise Swenson comes from, from Minnesota. Um, and, yeah, they just kind of, if they are, you know, it's like a, it's like an idea. If it does well, it, it starts to spread. People yeah. want to hear about it. Um, you're basically... I mean, it sounds like you're using a zillion different grapes, but if you had to narrow it down, I mean, you're working with six, eight 
Uh, yeah, nine I mean, grapes year in Riesling, Chardonnay, Cab Franc um, are the the go to vinifera that we're able is to work. Is the Cab with. Franc a rosé or you make a Cab? We do Franc. both. We you do. do uh, you yeah. do a Cab Franc and a rosé. We do a little rosé every year because we we really like the way Cab Franc does a rosé. Um, is the Riesling from Finger Lakes? Or uh, not? We we have our seventeen Riesling was from the Hudson River region, um, and the eighteen we got some from the Finger Lakes. This year we're doing a little bit of both. Can you differentiate? Uh, yeah, I mean they're completely different. They are if, completely. Yeah, they're completely different. And I, I mean, what if you drank both? What's the obvious difference? Um, well, f- just from the fin- two vinifications that we've done from those two right. vineyards. Well, that's what you go by. Yeah, the Hudson River region has a little bit. Um, I mean, I don't. I, I hate you know. Nobody wants to use the word minerality, but it's got a little bit more of a, a non-fruit character. A little bit more. Um, Maybe because we do a little whole cluster, maybe the stems are imparting a little Anything bit more. Anything with of the a, granite on that, or no? Uh, it, it it could be, right. um, but Not you know, necessarily. you know, I like I like the new idea that the geology is really more differentiating the texture of the wine, and not really showing up as a specific flavor. Um, uh, Brenna Quigley talks about that a lot. Right, um, she's a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> um, terrible. All right, so you said Riesling, you said Cab Franc, you said Chardonnay. Um, let's leave Paquette for last, um, which is not the grape, but. Um, what else? And then on the other side, we've got Marquette, um, which is a red hybrid, which is a tincture grape. So it's got red flesh, too. So we did a Petnet Rosé out of that, but it was still dark red. Um, and then Treminet, which is a hybrid of Gewürztraminer that grows right by us at, in the Brunswick Vineyard. Uh, it's got a ton of Gewürz character, so lychee, elderflower, right. white and yellow All flowers. All that sort of those. exotic. And we do, a, we do a whole cluster maceration with that. So give it two weeks of skin contact and it just blows it out. And you're walking a fine line be, between, you know, like going into Bed Bath & Beyond territory or right. Bath & Body Works, I guess. Um, right. But it's really, if, if, if you get the acidity right and you get the body right, it's a really nice, fun wine uh, and different. And then, uh, you know, Noiré and Cayuga, those are two New York classics. Noiré is just full of rotundone. N-O-I-R-E-T, which is, yep. we spelled before. Yep, N-O-I-R-E-T. And it's got rotundone, which is that black pepper note that you find in Cool Climate Syrah. So last year we took some of that and co-fermented it with some Cayuga, which is a, a, a floral <coughs> aromatic white, the same way they add a little Viognier to their right. Syrah and Northern Rhone. The Northern Rhone. Um, so, yeah, I was I, starting out in 16, I wasn't so super excited to be working well as excited to be working with hybrids as i am now i was like yeah we're going to make some hybrid wines it'll be part of what we Why? do uh i just i mean i only had a couple good ones from our friends and i'd had so many bad ones um just from experience yeah so i was like Not oh i want to make Cab Franc, i want to make pinot i right. want to make chardonnay i want to grow Sound those a little things. like a snob but that's all right no i got over it very quickly <laughs> yeah well, so our first uh, our first big vintage in 17, the Skin Contact Traminette that we made was my favorite wine that we made that year. So we named it Luca after our daughter who was born the nice. same year. So that, that was my turning point. Then there I was go. all in on, on hybrids. Are there or is there a grape that you haven't worked with yet? That is in the region that, that you'd like to. That's or? the Gamay. I need to. That's the Gamay. To play with. And Pinot the, too. The locally and, grown yeah, Gamay. And Pinot is hard to come by up there, and that's why I planted some because I want to work with Pinot. So Gamay, um, you would just make a Hudson Valley Beaujolais. Uh, I mean, I would, that's the other thing that I don't like to try to do is try to say make this wine, okay. but in this region. Like our, our Cab Francs are are Loire like. They're they're lower alcohol. They're higher acid. There's a little dusty minerality. There's a little green. But I'm not trying to make a Chenon in the Hudson River region. I'm trying to make a Hudson River region 
Cab Franc. But yes, of course, I would love to I make it. I get it. And what about the Pinot? Just make a straight-up Pinot? I mean, I would, yeah, I'd like to see what it would do. My, my friend Zach in, in the Niagara Escarpment on the other side of the state makes one of my favorite domestic Pinots. It's, and, it's um, delish. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. They're on limestone there on the, the, the Escarpment, so that's a little different than what we would have down here. But That'll, It'll all come. You'll see. Hopefully. All right, let's talk about something that you've been tagged with in a good way, which is Piquette. Sure. P-I-Q-U-E-T-T-E. Um, explain, Piquette is a thing. It's not a grape. Yep. Explain what Piquette is and then weave me into what you're doing. All right. So Piquette is, it's a historical beverage. Um, and, I mean, you can trace the roots of it all the way back to antiquity. The Greeks and the Romans were watering down their wine. There was the Laura of the Roman Empire um, that the soldiers would make when they were on tour. Um, but really what we're focusing on is this uh, 19th century European thing. Um, and Piquet was a French name. Uh, the Italians had one called Aquarello, or they would call it Aquapazza, crazy water, which is my favorite name <laughs> for it. Uh, but essentially what it was is um, <clears throat> the growers and the farmers and the field workers couldn't afford wine, and they couldn't drink water because it was full of bacteria and would kill them. And so they had to come up with something they could drink. Um, and so they would take the pomace left over from winemaking and take it home. Or sometimes, if it was a big house grower, they would do the it The winery themselves. pretty much discarded a lot right, of it. Exactly. Just put it in buckets and left it yeah. to be. And whatever. it was like, you know, it's like squeezing the last few drops of water out of a right. sponge. You would soak it with water and press it again and let you would add water right exactly so you add the water back would you let it sit uh i mean i have a i have a dozen old recipes that we've been working on translating and looking through and you know it's it's basically quick to letting it sit yeah varies done a hundred different ways um adding other uh herbs and spices and other stuff to it everyone had their kind of way of making it palatable i i like to look at it in the same way that um, the, the poor and the butchers had to take the offcuts of meat and offal and turn them into something delicious, which, you know, in the last 15 years has come back in restaurants in a huge way. It's like oh, yeah. foie gras here and oxtails and everything. You know, nose to tail exactly. and everything in between. But you don't just take the pomace and add water. So, yeah, we did a lot of uh, different trials. And it was, you know, we had already done so... In the first year, we had done a second wash, uh, which is adding water to our pomace because we wanted to play with distillation and make some grappa. And then my friend Tristan, who works at Kingston Wine Company, showed me this passage in a book called The Red and the White, uh, History of (laughs) Wine in 18th Century Europe. And he's like, why don't you try this? And I'm like, okay, well, we're already doing that. Let's just not distill it. Let's just leave it in the barrels and see what happens. And then come spring, we basically did, you know, two, three dozen trials where we added a little bit of wine back to it or left it plain. So we did like plain 5%, 10%, 50% wine. And then we bottled it with 5, 10, 15 grams per liter of uh, wildflower honey as tirage. That's what we use for our sparkling in the bottle. And we did that with all the different... Your honey or you... Uh, No, we we get it from an apiary five minutes from us. Yeah, yeah. Local. Right right in Pine Bush too, yeah. Um, Yeah, we don't have have hives yet. Um, We built a chicken coop this year, but we still haven't gotten the chickens. Um, Does the so, honey stimulate fermentation? So that's our that's our like uh, tirage in sparkling and champagne production when they're adding the sugar for the secondary ferment and bottle. So we're not doing it patnat style. We're doing it. Um, it's not necessarily method traditionnel. It's more like colfondo because we don't disgorge it. So we put a little sugar in, put the cap on, and then it starts up again in the bottle. And it's just enough to give it three atmospheres. You know, like between beer and sparkling wine. Um, How long is it? W- what's the minimum? 
for the process to run its course? So we like to leave the the piquette um, with a little bit of the wine added back to it to bulk age over the winter because what happens is the pH jumps up a lot and at that higher pH, you get a lot more lactic acid bacterial activity. So all the funky stuff that you try to keep out of a beer, unless you're making a sour beer, or you try to keep at bay in wine, um, you, we let it run wild. And that's what gives it the, the, the funk, the sourness, the, the interest, because otherwise it really tastes like watery wine. But when you start to get these secondary and tertiary compounds that it makes, um, it really gives it some interest. And so we let that bulk age, and then in the spring usually we do the, the bottling with the honey. Um, and then we leave it in the bottle for another month or two to carbonate and to, to settle out. Um, but yeah, so, we just, we did it. We tried it. It turned out pretty well. We're like, oh, let's sell this cheap. We can get a little more money from our grapes. Hit the and, ground hard, and, and, right? Yeah, and keep our, our wines cheaper. For us, it's a, it's a, it's a philosophical monetary thing that we're doing. We're, we're making something that's fun and glue-glue, but it lets us keep our prices on our bottles at the 20 to 30 range instead of the 30 to 40 range. That worked out well. Um, we've been drinking it. And it's a delicious wine. Um, it's a beautiful sort of pink grapefruity. Yeah. Um, very drinkable. We'll talk about it a little more during the uh, wine sip. Um, before we get to our wine list, before we get to our wine list, I just wanted to ask you a few things. Um, I think I met you maybe two years ago at Raw Wine. Yeah. And then I bumped into you last year at Jenny and Francois, your distributor's portfolio tasting. Um, one of the ways that you get people in the trade to taste your wine and get out there is at these fairs. Sure, yeah. And you've been to Raw Wine Fair, but you had a hand in creating... Yeah, so we did the this Catskill year. The Catskill Wine, Wine Summit. Summit. just happened, right? Yeah, yeah, we did it in August. Um, yeah, we had uh, we were selling wine to this um, restaurant at a resort up there, and they kind of asked us. Uh, if Emerson? We, yeah, if we'd be interested in, in helping out put together a wine fair. And I said, yes, if we could do 100% New York wines. Um, and nice. they, they were into it. And so, you know, I ended up asking about 25 or 30 wineries, and it just so happens that only my friends said yes. So it happened to be a pretty tight-knit, not all super natural-leaning, but just people doing really good terroir-focused, um, low-intervention-ish winemaking and growing good food. I know you there. had, like, Bloomer Creek down yep. from the Finger Lakes, yep. and yep. you had a bunch of the local guys. Yeah, Zach and Eric. Uh, crew is that something that'll happen again next year yeah uh, it was it was awesome uh it wasn't huge you know we sold 100 tickets but it was a pretty good crowd for what it was yeah and uh, i think the, that's a success the, the venue loved it they want to do it again i think all the vendors had a really good time everyone who attended had a good time so we're going to try to make it a little bigger next year and just you know keep uh showcasing new york wine from across the region just it's i think that'll happen um you know raw wines coming into new york and what's crazy to me is you know raw wine is such a ter terrific venture but now there's these off wine fairs yeah there's a lot and happening. you're involved in a few of them i think there's the peripheral yep uh wine they've been doing that for a couple of years actually we haven't been yeah I, I didn't it was imply that they the were right, new uh, but yeah right before raw so we could never do all of them but yeah peripheral is the right before raw coming up in, in hudson new york yeah right um, and then, yeah, the, the uh, Wild World Festival, which was, I guess, in Austin for the first time right. last year. Uh, is doing, Byron yeah. Bates? Yeah, it's doing one in New York. Right. Um, right at, well, it's actually, I guess, on the Monday of Raw. I think what I'll do is on the, on our social, I'll, I'll post, you know, information if people want to yeah. know. 
But you'll be at Peripheral. Yep, I'll be at Peripheral okay. and I'll be at Wild World. And then, the, you know, last year, just to tag on to that, um, the LA Times did a wine bowl in Los Angeles. That was really fun. And then uh, our friends at Old Westminster Winery did uh, the Burnt Hill Solstice Festival down in Maryland. And so there's, they're popping up everywhere. There's all these Great. really amazing yeah. wine festivals. I- I'm very happy to see that. Um, the culture expands. All right, Todd, we can't let you leave without doing our uh, wine list. We ask all our guests five questions. Uh, same five questions to everyone. Spontaneous. Don't dwell on them. Guys like Kirk Sutherland or Raj Parr, you know, gave stellar answers. So you don't have to oh, get no pressure. No pressure. <clears throat> All right. They're very base questions. Uh, so the first question is, what are you drinking now? Besides you, <laughs> you know, I was yelling at you in the, uh, our green room. <laughs> it's the wood room. I'm like, what are you doing here? You're in the middle of harvest. Why did you say yes to the show and all of that? Um, so you're in the thick of harvest and tasting wines, but separate of that, what are you drinking now? What are you tasting? What's in the fridge? What's uh, interesting you? Can I say can I say cider and beer? Is that possible? Yeah. Uh, a lot of a lot of really good New York cider. Um, we just did a, a cider tour with a bunch of the other New Yorkers with Glenwood Farm uh, up in New York. Um, but beer is like beer is the go to for harvest I'd season. So, Two quick things. Give me one or two favorite ciders. Uh, okay. Uh, Sundstrom cider. Leif okay. Sundstrom. Um, S-U-N-D-S-T-O-R-O-M. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, Metal House Cider is doing some really awesome forage stuff up there. Um, and then beer has just been, it's like, you know, it's the go-to cheap beer usually, but we like to do a little bit more than cheap beer. So like Hudson Valley Brewing has amazing stuff. stuff coming out. And then people have been bringing up stuff from the Referend in New Jersey, doing all sorts of crazy Jersey's barrel sour beers. Yeah. yeah, I'm waiting for Jersey and, and Pennsylvania to start making some really good natural wine because it's coming, I'm, I'm, I guarantee you. Yeah, you're there's right. There's vineyards there, and there's people that are on the fringes and on the it edges. It ain't happening in Jersey right now, but they just need one guy like you to, like, you know, Wh- experiment. Wants to do it. All right, next question, goofiest question on the list, but tell me your favorite wine and uh, food pairing. Oh, that's easy. Um, oh, it is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Cab Franc and anything with fennel sausage. So sausage ah. pizza and Cab Franc, um, anything like that. It's just it's Just a grilled sausage so with fennel sausage and a glass peppers, of Cab yeah, Franc? Yeah. It's just like it's got, if you get why, little, why does that work? Because a little peppery, like green peppery note is like the classic pairing for that fennel sausage. So it's a really good. That's a first on the Grape Nation, which I like. All right. Do your best to answer this without excluding anyone. Uh, favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So Uh-oh. you are a New Yorker. Right. Upstate and downstate. Yep. You're in the Valley, which is a very hot area. We're sitting in Roberta's, you know, which could easily be one of the answers. But give me a couple of places where they do it well. You know, a place where... They have a great variety, like a Roberta's and a guy who knows what he's doing, like a Kirk and, you know, reasonable prices and enthusiastic people and great food to go with it. Okay, so besides Roberta's, which is amazing, um, uh, Brunette Wine Bar up in Kingston, New York is amazing. They've been doing awesome stuff up there for a long time. Um, and then I guess just to keep it a little off the beaten path, well, I think, I mean, the usual is now starting to get a lot of uh, recognition. Anthony, Anthony he's yeah. the cover boy. On, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're, they're He'll be on the show in three weeks. Yeah, I, I, think. I think Alice actually said that when she was on, so I, I yeah. guess I'm stealing her answer. But um, Pinch Chinese also has like such an amazing list and just really awesome food to go with it. That's the Filipino mafia you just uh, mentioned. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jonelle, Anthony, yeah. and who's the guy from Pinch's? Miguel. Miguel, Miguel right. Leon, yeah. Um, what about, you didn't leave Brooklyn that long ago. 
Uh-huh. You know, uh, June, June Wine Bar? June Wine Bar is a great natural yeah, I, wine bar. I, I haven't been able to go to some of the new spots out okay. there yet. But, uh, All right. Uh, good job on that. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? Oh. Um, and <clears throat> in the old days, it used to be the rarest, I th- most expensive. Yeah, I think... Uh, I, <clears throat> now I, it's experiential. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I, I, I love um, Burgundy, but I can't afford it. But the few opportunities I've had to drink really great uh, Burgundy with some age on it, um, Crystal, my partner, bought uh, like a 99 Grand Cru uh, Maisie Chambertin for us for my birthday one year. And we had it at uh, the Nomad with the roast chicken. It was amazing. Uh, uh, Joseph Roti was a producer. But I think even maybe on top of that was I had a 92 uh, Chambol Moussi uh, Amoruse from, uh, I think it was just Druhan, like one of the right. Irish producers. But I got it a long time ago and I'd forgotten about it, but we were planting the Pinot vines, the first Pinot vines in our property, and I drank it with Crystal and our friends and my brother, and it was just... So burgundy. Perfect, yeah. But good stories. All right, last question, and I think you could uh, handle this. Tell me, recommend the best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail. Give me a red, give me a white. You can go by category, like white, muscadet is always a good answer. But if you have something interesting. Besides Piquet. <laughs> no, no, let's let's put the top of the list as Piquet and maybe um, one or two yeah, of the other I think, wines. Uh, all right, so uh, white, I mean, I'm going to stick with New York, and I'm going to say New York Riesling. Um, there's plenty of them Absolutely. under 20 bucks. Like uh, Ravines has a dry Riesling that I think is 15 great, to 17. Great answer. Uh, and then Fjord uh, from the Hudson River region, they have just their, their reg- yeah, regular dry Riesling that's about 15 to 17 bucks. Great. I've seen it on glass lists for, for pretty cheap, so I know How it's about a red? Affordable. Red is harder. Um, I mean, it's hard to make... Uh, cheap wine in the way that we like to make it, but um, I think it's not cheap. It's inexpensive. Yeah, inexpensive. Sorry. Right. Uh, I think probably looking for you know looking for things. I know red blend has become a bad word. A red blend has a certain connotation. I like red blends. The prisoner. But I, I, yeah, but I think if you're if you're going to a small producer like us that has some something that they kind of put together with their off cuts to make a, a glass pour wine, uh, like my friend Zach at Litton Buffel has a, a parking lot that's you know a blend of his different pinots that he's able to put. Together together i think it comes in under 20 bucks um okay. on, on the shelf uh but yeah look good. i mean look for vdfs from france or like a red blend from a small producer that you like they usually have a cheaper good one. stuff and if i didn't mention i will uh post uh todd's answers on social and we're going to segue into our weekly wine sip um where every week we taste a different wine on air i asked todd if he would bring in stuff and let him bring whatever he wanted in we kicked it off with a piquette um, and now we're going to try a couple other things, and you're going to tell me what. I've brought my tasting crew in to help me taste, and that's Kirk Sutherland, who runs the wine program at Roberta, and Kat Johnson from uh, Heritage Radio. This is the so Reckon crew in here. What are, we, what are we tasting here? So we're going to drink our, our And new- I have four glasses. Kirk, that's yours. Uh, our new Marquette that's just coming out in this current release. Um, our, our mailing list release just went out. Uh, sign up for the mailing list if you're not on there. Let's now's a good time to segue, and I'll do it at the end of the show All too. Right, so sure, the mailing sure. list is uh, just on our website wilddarkfarm.com. Uh, you can sign up, and then we release our wines direct to consumer um, twice a year in the spring and in the fall, and that's the 
easiest and cheapest way to make sure you okay. can get all of our wines before they go out to distribution. Uh, so this is coming out in the next. It's it's out now, and you get it shipped in the next. So month. this is the Marquette. So M A R Q U E T T E. This, this is the this third. This is a hybrid. It's a hybrid from the University of Minnesota. This is grown up at Amarici Vineyard in Valley Falls, New York. Uh, fully organic. Is Valley Falls the Hudson region? Uh, it's actually outside the AVA, and he's okay. the old grower. Is not too not happy that I about care, that. but it's not Finger Lakes. No, no, it's, it's still it's, in the it's area. It's Washington County. That's what okay. it's called. Uh, and so this is a third different vinification that we did on this wine. This one is whole cluster, 50% whole cluster macerated for two weeks, and then pressed into a combination of one new chestnut barrel and glass demijohns. Um, and we had a chestnut barrel that we had bought for cider, uh, and we didn't get enough apples last year because it was a tough uh, year right. for apple yields. So we're like, let's put some wine in. And is see this, what this is your first chestnut barrel yeah, wine? it's our first chestnut barrel Here we wine. go. Where's the chestnut from? Uh, it's it's a French tonnellery. I right. forget. The, okay. Uh, it starts with a D. So it's, it's French, French chestnut. It's French chestnut. Okay. All right. So let's give this a sniff, and then we'll throw it over the tongue, and let's do a quick evaluation. So the color is a nice, nice purple. You know, close to deep. You know, the edges. Goes to the edges. So beautiful color. It's hard to get light color on Marquette. It just, it's just it is. inky black when okay. you're pressing it. Um, so this is an inky black. It's a nice purple. Yeah, it, it settles out pretty nicely. Tell me what we get on the nose. Is there a classic Marquette nose? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's only my first vintage working Kurt, with it. what do you get on the nose? I mean, I don't know if there's even a classic Marquette nose. You know, you de- you definitely get that carbonic influence on it where it's very spicy and stemmy and fresh. It's, All good. It smells very enticing. I mean, after I give it a sniff, my mouth is definitely watering. All right, so then Mostly let's... Mostly red-fruited, I would yeah, say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Let's go to mouthfeel. I mean, typically it's a medium wine. Not thin, not unctuous, right? Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I mean, you can you could make it that way, I suppose, if you really push your sugar on it, but we harvest this at 20-ish, 21 bricks. Nice so little 11%. acidity. Yeah, high, high acid. This Nice. This came in at like 308 last year, pH, so... Um, does the palate match the nose? I mean, what are we getting on the palate? Yeah, I think so. Spice. Mostly crunchy red fruit and a little spice. And it's like, it's my first time working with new chestnut, or I think even drinking something from new chestnut in the wine world. So I'm Dude, Kirk, trying to figure out what it is. Kirk, any chestnut there. up? I mean, it, do, it doesn't really diff- present as a, a new wood influenced wine whatsoever. Right. I, I would assume that, you know, chestnut, the grain on it is very, very tight. So if you're doing something that does have a carbonic sort of influence on it you're going to retain all of that freshness on it it doesn't really throw a lot of those sort of like vanilla intense flavors that smoky vanilla oaky yeah it's more of like a generalized urban very there's it it just doesn't feel like it was fermented in something super super porous or new whatsoever it feels more like you know tight grained really bright acid retaining red fruit to it. let the wine come through yeah. without the yeah. wood all right um both of you can answer this what's a good food pairing for this kind of wine uh maybe a pepperoni pizza mm. pepperoni yeah. pizza i mean i'm gonna pe- pair pizza with everything you're in the I right make, place for that i make a yeah. lot of pizza at home because i moved out of the city and i needed to learn um so that's i guess always at the top of my mind um but it would go with uh, meats and all of that. All right. So that is, what's the vintage year? Uh, this is 18. That's the 2018 Wild Ark Farm 
Marquette. Marquette. Do we have anything else to taste? Uh, sure, yeah. Before let's... we go off, my engineer Jeet's looking at me like I'm going to strangle you when you get out of here. <laughs> but I'm like, you're going to have to break the door down. We're drinking here, Jeet. All right. And then, just quickly, we didn't really talk about it, but you, we tasted the piquette in the can. And the piquette was made from what grape? Uh, this one was a blend. It's our first blended piquette. So it was started off with a field blend of Noiré and Cayuga, and then there's a little bit of Chardonnay and Riesling and Cab Franc in there. We kind of just uh, we're kind of working with mixing and matching until we hit a balance. Came out we, well. Yeah, we put it. I in mean, Cat, you had it. It was delish. I, I had said it. It I've been drinking refreshing. it all summer. Yep. Awesome. All right. So what are we drinking now? Uh, so we're gonna take you on a trip to lovely Long Island. So oh, from no. the North Fork, from yeah. South Hold. Uh, we've got uh, Teraldigo uh, from the old South Old Farm and Cellar. Vineyard. Take a second and spell for me. T O R T E R T E R. I said I was O L D E G O. Teraldigo. And that's on the island. Uh, it is. There's a there's a few plantings across the states. There's one up at Redtail Ridge in the Finger Lakes, also, and then there's uh, someone in California has a little bit. Um, Nobody vints it on the island, though. Uh, I mean, South, South Hold did. Um, they had a, uh, they had a Channing, bottle but in. I don't even I don't think, think he, he does. does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he, he does? does. Oh, okay. He may be the only bit. other guy. Right? So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a northern Italian variety, Alpine, Alto Adige. Uh, Elisabetta Foradori is one of the most famous practitioners in the natural wine world. Um, so some of this came available last year, and we said, yeah, let's, let's try it out. And so the, it's it's much more expensive to buy fruit on Long Island than it is in the Finger Lakes or where we are. So this was very expensive for us. So we had to make the piquette out of it, but we also then took the pomace post-piquette and ah. soaked cider on it and made our sweetheart pink cider from last release. So we really So quickly, squeezed, sweetheart is the uh, name of the It was a cider, the name that we gave. Cider, yeah, of, and it's uh, a cider. Northern Spy Cider on Toraldigo Grape Skins. Yeah. We go. had it in the Blanc comparing very fancy all right so color i i mean this is this may even be deeper than the marquette oh absolutely yeah right definitely all right so that's color what are we getting on the nose interesting nose beautiful i mean i'm terrible at description floral herbal um and then a little bit of raspberry or black raspberry fruit i think is it weird if i say it's almost like a cedar closet thing going on no and there's a little bit of pickle juice on the nose no pickle juice all right right. yeah there is yeah okay in a good way i'm not little 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 volatility maybe no 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 all right so that's the nose it's it's an italian grape so it's got to have a little va right if you're doing it justice the mouthfeel Medium body, little, 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 little more mouth, little more, yeah, than the other Absolutely. one. Absolutely. So this you know, was uh, this was like five weeks um, on the skins and stems, forty percent whole cluster, whereas the Marquette was only two weeks. So you definitely get a lot more structure there, a lot more um, plush yeah. roundness too. It, it's it's more mouth filling. Um, palate descriptors. What's the fruit? A darker fruit? You know, a lot of people describe the you know impetus of Toraldigo as looking at its parent grapes which are Syrah and Pinot Noir and this very much presents more to me as that like Syrah range of fruit where a little it's more spice like darker darker red blue berry a little bit of olive I agree. it's pretty savory yeah it does have it's very, very savory, savory yeah. character you know what the nose to me now is more olive than pickle juice <laughs> Oh, that's a, it was something briny. Mm-hmm. You just you couldn't, yeah, couldn't but, land on it. But only in a good way. I mean, I would shut up if I didn't like it or I was trying to be negative. I, I mean, mean at, at the restaurant here, I always 
whenever a guest says they like Syrah and they want to taste something out of their right, you know, give me something interesting. I would show them Geraldio. I, I, I think that's from a good call. Elizabeth Fordori. Right, so what do we pair with this? A wine like this? Um, yeah, more 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 on the meaty side. Maybe some roast pork. Um, maybe I mean, what grows together goes together. And like you know, northern Italian kind of uh, heartier fare, meat and cheese. Good call. Dishes. So that's the, that's a 2018. Uh, that is an 18 too. Yes. 18. How do we pronounce it again? Uh, Toraldigo. Toraldigo. I think. I, I'm ah, whatever. <laughs> I have some Italian heritage, but, you know, I never learned how to speak the language, so. All right, so, Todd, let's go over this again. If people want to get more information on Wild Ark Farms and the wines and what you're doing, they go to the website? Uh, The website, wildarkfarm.com, or, I mean, we're very active on Instagram, at wildarkfarm. Okay. Um, That, you know, that's how we put out our calls for volunteers. W-I-L-D-A-R-C, Ark Farm, F-A-A. ARM, yeah. right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, we end the show with that anyway, but that's really, yeah. I mean, it's morphed from Facebook and websites yeah. to stuff like Instagram and all of that. Um, all right, we're going to wrap the show up. We ran a little late, but that's okay because anytime you're drinking wine and three or four different wines, you know, screw everyone. <laughs> so. All right, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, um, on Instagram at Ruby, and the hashtag The Grape Nation on both of those, Heritage Radio. Um, on Facebook, it's Heritage Radio Network. On Instagram, it's Heritage underscore Radio. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby and the hashtag uh, The Grape Nation. As I said, we will post Todd's wine list, all his interesting picks, and I will give you the lineup of everything we drank today, starting from the Piquette to the... Uh, Tora Bora, whatever. <laughs> Tora Ladogal. What was it? Toraldigo. Um I'll list everything, the vintages and all that. I'll also list Todd's. Terror. Terror. All right, so Todd, um, once again, on social, the preference is Instagram at yeah, Wild Ark Farm. Farm. I'm at T. Cavallo if anyone wants right. to. Right. I wanted to ask you that. If people want to see you know, what you're doing. I basically post back and forth between the two it's all the same content so yeah but i mean sometimes you put something up right. that's a little more personal i'm sure you talked about 40 under 40 right he mentioned i did mention that at the top congratulations right? i did congratulations. mention that. thank you wow. I just under the wire i turned 40 in <laughs> you did it. a couple months he didn't say it but the most it was a joyful thing but the most aggravating thing was he had to put a clean shirt on <laughs> for the photo shoot <laughs> which bothered him all right i want to thank our guest todd cavallo todd from wild ark farm doing a lot of great and interesting things um very close to home you know we do the show from roberta's uh restaurant pizza um in bushwick brooklyn todd you came down here earlier today what was the drive hour Buck and a half minutes, yeah. yeah yeah under two hours so it's very cool what's going on i always say we wanted to be the like the loire valley is to paris just filling the restaurants and cafes you're on your way besides talking kirk into drinking your wines we get pascaline in here and you know you're good um all right like i said we'll post todd's wine list and weekly uh wine sip stuff um thanks again todd 
Uh, thank you to our engineer, Jeet, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.